traditionally, if you were to, you know, just cut a check to charity, in order to get a tax benefit, you'd actually have to itemize your deductions. And recently they raised the standard deduction, so fewer people itemize. But with this, it's a way to save money on taxes, even if you don't typically itemize them. Welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm also doing well. It is a beautiful, warm, pleasant, sunny day, and I spent all day inside with the blinds closed working. Oh, cave-like. that's a shame. That's one, a one shame. One could say cave-like. <laughs> yeah, it was a shame. Oh, I got out in the morning, so uh-huh. I, I had a all-day-long meeting today, and I started it off. I thought, okay, I'll start in the morning in the shade while it's good, and I think I lasted till about 10.30, and then it was too hot for me. I had to go back inside already. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's not a good sign. Yeah. The fact that it's April, yeah, yeah. Not good. Yeah. Got just, just those few hours in the morning now <laughs> in the evening, that's about it. Well, it also means that your heat tolerance is not at a sufficient level yet. Like you are not prepared for what's going to happen to you in the next two months. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's always like this, right? You come out of winter and you're like, oh man, it's so hot already. And really though, by the time we get to May or June, it's only, it's only 102. Oh, it's a beautiful day today. You just got to acclimate (laughs) a little bit. Right. Like what? It's 98. Whew. Get the sweater out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's chilly. That breeze. It's chilly. Oh man. Yeah, that's in our future. Actually, I think it's uh it's a little bit like the the blessing and curse of of working in a place that has a lot of good weather is that uh when you do what we do, you end up working indoors most of the time, not outside. Mm-hmm. The upside to that is in the summertime, the temperature in the place where you're working is the exact same temperature as it was during the winter time because it's yeah. all just climate controlled anyways. Exactly. Exactly. I got I got a nice view of my pool from my office. So oh. if I just I just look around my my monitors, I'm like, oh, there's the pool. There it is. And keep working. <laughs> someone someone should use it someday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought that today we could talk about giving to charity and all the many fun different ways to give to charity because this is a topic of uh quite some frequency for us and our clients who, uh, you know, knock on wood and thankfully are quite charitably inclined. And we like that. And we like to help them with those sorts of things. So I didn't think there'd be uh, anybody more fun to talk to and bring back to talk to uh, than AJ Price. Uh, For anybody who did not catch AJ the last time he was on the podcast, uh, AJ is a CPA and CFP at Strategic Wealth Partners. Uh, in Deerfield, uh, Illinois, i.e. Chicago, basically. And uh, we really appreciate AJ. He's somebody that we like a lot. And so, AJ, we, again, appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. We hope that you haven't had too much PTSD from the last time you were on the podcast, so you're going to be able to bring your full self to this episode. (laughs) I will. I will. Good. (laughs) We We didn't ruin you the last time. So you're going to be able to do this episode uh, to the best of your ability. Not quite Hollywood famous, but I'm hoping to be there soon. Okay. Yeah. You're getting there. You're getting there. I tell you what, keep doing this podcast and you're going to be there sooner than you think. Mm-hmm. Well, take it. <laughs> well, in uh, 
in the spirit of things then here, spirit of things topically, I should say, what I'm what I'm thinking is we get asked questions about sort of some hot topics in charitable giving or charitable planning. It's like every other day. Okay, we're getting we're getting hit with questions about one of these things. So I thought, you know, it might be instructive to really run through these topics because it's going to bring a lot of value for other people who get asked a lot of these questions or other people who have these questions because they just seem to come up with so much frequency. So the first area vis-a-vis charitable planning where uh, we get a lot of questions is with IRAs or retirement accounts, um, which are very popular vehicles for charitable planning. So I think we should definitely dig into those. Then we get hit with tons of questions about donor advised funds or DAFs, if you're in the know, the DAF DAF. And then we get hit with plenty of questions about foundations, people wanting to know about foundations. Do I have a foundation? Can I have a foundation? What is a foundation? And then we get hit with lots of questions about charitable remainder trusts, Somewhat, I think, because a lot of the charities do a good job of uh, educating people that these things exist and they're complex enough that very few people actually understand how they really work. So uh, that's where we come in. So if uh, that's a, a list that's that's suitable for the two of you, then I say let's let's dig into them because those are some meaty topics. Sounds good. Great. So, uh, well, let me kick it to you then first, AJ, on uh, on the IRA side of things. What are kind of the common questions that you seem to see? So the most common question we see is not necessarily what's the best way to donate from my IRA, but it's what's the best way to donate. But seeing that we're talking about IRAs right now, what we like to focus on here is something called a qualified charitable distribution. And what that means is for some of our clients or for anyone who's over the age of 72, they're required to take a certain amount out from their IRA each year. Ordinarily, this would be taxable as income. Think of it as your paycheck income, otherwise known as ordinary income. But if you donate that cash directly to charity instead of taking it for yourself, that income will never hit the top line of your return and you're still giving the money to charity. Better yet, once the money's in the charity's hands, they don't have to pay any tax on it. So it's the ultra tax efficient way to make a charitable donation. It's almost hard for me to believe that this provision did not always exist, right? Like not too long ago, I think it was pre-2018, this provision was always on a sunset when it did exist. And like every few years, Congress would have to decide, yes, we're going to keep it. No, we're not going to keep it. They had limitations on it, those sorts of things. So it's it's such a, a popular provision as can happen. Uh, historically that now it's a permanent fixture in the tax code. And one thing that's really nice about it is traditionally, if you were to you know, just cut a check to charity, in order to get a tax benefit, you'd actually have to itemize your deductions. And recently they raised the standard deduction, so fewer people itemize. But with this, it's a way to save money on taxes, even if you don't typically itemize them. Yeah, really good point. So just to put some numbers on that, uh, I think the standard deduction, uh, well, it's indexed for inflation, so this number is already outdated. But I think the standard deduction has a base base level of like $26,000 for a family. So if a family wanted to, say, take money out of the IRA first, put it into their bank account, not doing this qualified charitable uh, contribution route, and then give the money to charity, they wouldn't be able to really protect that unless it was over $26,000. Like they wouldn't be able to make use of the full 
contribution deduction unless they had exceeded that standard deduction. It would, and as you're describing it, the way it works is it never even hits the top of your tax return. So it's not included in your income at all. It doesn't get taxed when it comes out. Like that's a, that's a huge benefit. That's better than a deduction, in fact. Totally agree. It's really a no-brainer. If you're going to make a deduction and you have to take money out of your IRA, no better place to do it than from your IRA. Yeah. And I get too, I get, Brent and I have a few clients we help with their uh, required minimum distributions each year. Come December, we always talk through with them how much they need to take out of their IRAs. And I believe for the qualified charitable distribution, you can apply up to, I think it's $100,000 towards your RMDs. So if you have to take out $200,000, $100,000 can go straight to charity. You only have to take $100,000 that's going to count towards your income. It's it's a huge bonus. Totally agree. Okay. So that's sort of while you're alive. What about for people who die owning IRAs? Because at least in, in our view or in our experience, IRAs are very tricky little creatures for somebody who's inheriting them. I think I said that in a, in a nice way. It was nice. It was nice. So thank you. So uh, a few years ago, the way it used to work is if you inherited an IRA from someone other than a spouse, you'd be able to take distributions over your lifetime. And those are required not when you're 72, but right away. But recently, this something called the SECURE Act was passed. And now instead of over your lifetime, you have to take the entire balance within 10 years. So what that effectively does is Either if you want to take it every year or if you want to take it all in one year, you're going to have higher taxes paid. So a way around that is for if you're charitably inclined, you could actually name a charity as a beneficiary for your IRA. And those assets will go right to the charity and they'll never pay any tax on it. Yeah. So just to to kind of flesh that out a little bit. So if the beneficiary takes the money out of the account and the beneficiary is, say, an individual, not only does the beneficiary have to pay tax on that amount, but they're going to pay tax at their highest tax rate. It's not capital gains. It doesn't have any favorable tax treatment. It's ordinary income tax, right? So it's going to get taxed at the highest rate. If if instead it's a charity, the charity is a tax-exempt entity for tax purposes. Sometimes you hear it called a 501c3, but that really just means an entity that the IRS has granted a status where they do not have to pay taxes for the most part and income coming to them, that charity, that 501c3 coming out of an IRA is not in the category of things that they have to pay tax on. So they pay a 0% tax rate. Okay. So the top individual tax rate right now, federal is 37% and the charity rate is zero. So you're saving 37% on the dollar by giving it to charity meaning that the money, like the utility of the money is that much more valuable. And to put it in a little bit different perspective, and sometimes how I try to explain it to clients is if you're if you're not giving to charity and you're doing something that you know is going to incur tax, say at a real at a high rate, like 37 percent or a state tax, which is even higher. Really, what you're doing is you're selecting the federal government as the charity of your choice, because your option is to give it to a separate charity that can use 100% of the money. And the federal government will gladly take the money for themselves. So they they view themselves as, as a charity for federal tax purposes. I like that. I might use that myself. It's a very motivating uh, analogy. I have had zero clients say, wow, I love the federal government. I really want to support their causes. Very, very, very seldom. 
uh, have I heard those words uttered and never by a client. There's usually at least one charity they can pick ahead of a federal government, right? There's usually, usually at least one that's near usually their one. heart. <laughs> yes, usually at least one. Okay, well, I think we we covered that pretty well. What about um, donor advised funds, which maybe the way to go about donor advised funds would be, and I'll, I'll kind of kick this to you, Rachel, is let's explain what they are and then get into kind of the common questions about these things. Yeah, so a donor advised fund is a great way to give to charity if you've got charitable intent. What you're basically doing is as an individual, you are gifting money into basically a charitable investment account that is sponsored by a charity. So that charity controls the money, they manage the money for you. And then the money gets to grow in that uh, account tax-free. And then basically you still get to retain some control though to pick which qualified charities are gonna benefit from that account. So it's a great way to put money away, get it out of your estate, uh, let it grow tax-free. Someone is managing it for you so you don't even have to think about it. But the only time that you do wanna think about it is when you're thinking, hmm, I wanna give it to this charity or I wanna give it to that charity. Then you just let that sponsored charity, uh, the one that's managing the account, let them know, you know which charities you really want to benefit with the money. They're just going to do some due diligence on their side and make sure it is a qualified charity under the code and then charities benefit. So it's a really great, simple vehicle um, to be able to have a little bit of control over where your money is going to, but still letting it grow tax free without you having to manage it. Yeah, very good summation. And and the very technical legal requirement is that the charity has to have ultimate control over the money. You, the donor, can't retain control over the money. So you can make a recommendation to the charity that sponsors the account about how they should distribute the funds. However, assuming your recommendations are not just completely bogus, they're just going to go along with your recommendation because that's how they that's how they get people to put money into these accounts and they charge an administrative fee for holding the account. So it's a win-win. So practically speaking, uh, the sponsoring, the sponsoring charity will just make payments out to the charity of your choice that you want to receive the funds. Okay. So with that little setup, then what are the, uh, AJ, then what are the kind of the common questions that you see with these donor advised funds? So the biggest question is <clears throat> that we see is, you know, why not donate just directly to the charity, right? Why do I have to open a separate account? But to Rachel's point is you can, all you have to do is add money to the account and then you can decide from there, which sounds like the same thing. But in terms of record keeping and, you know, if you do itemize your deductions, all that matters is what you put in and then you can write as small checks as you want out and you don't have to keep track of them for record keeping. So that's a nice little administrative perk to the donor advised funds. But, you know, then the next question comes, well, how do I fund this thing, right? So what we like to do with a lot of our clients, particularly ones that are not yet at that required minimum distribution age, is we like to donate appreciated securities in kind. So a common example I use that's relevant to many people is Apple stock. So Apple stock, for those who bought it, you know, years, decades, whatever it is, how long ago, it's appreciated substantially. So most people who have the Apple stock don't really want to get rid of it per se, but they also don't, they don't, they don't want to get rid of it for two reasons. One, they'll pay capital gains tax on it. And two, they love the stock. So what we do in these situations is they say, huh, okay, what do you want? How much do you want to donate? Okay, you want to donate $20,000, for example? Well, let's take $20,000 of your Apple, donate it in kind. So basically just transfer it to the donor advised fund 
and then we can take $20,000 of cash and repurchase the Apple. So what you're really doing is you're moving the appreciated position outside of your account to the donor advised fund and you're buying it back at a higher basis. So that way you're, if you were to turn around and sell it, you wouldn't really incur any taxes. And you're getting that, you're getting that donation, you're getting that charitable contribution deduction. So you're, you're essentially saying that you want the federal government to subsidize your rebalancing of your portfolio in, in essence, right? Like, well, I guess step number one, the, the client must have charitable intent, right? I, I think that's maybe an assumption that we're we're playing off of here, but we probably should state that, like the client actually has to have the intent to get rid of something. But then when you're making that contribution in kind and you're avoiding having to pay that capital gain and now you can rebalance because you can sell that asset inside the DAF without paying any tax, not only that, the federal government then just throws in a kicker on top and pays you money back in the form of a deduction, assuming you can take deductions over the standard deduction. And so you get paid to give to charity. It's a, it's sort of like a win-win-win. You get to rebalance for free, you're supporting your charitable causes, and the federal government literally pays you to do it. And one thing that we actually, I think we talked about this on our last podcast, is We've seen a lot of our clients use these donor advised funds as a vehicle to kind of ease the next generation into into their wealth and how things work and transfer those values to your children. Um, because a lot of times it's kind of a sticky situation. Say, hey, I'm not ready to have my kids know everything, but slowly bring them into that knowledge while keeping the family values intact. It's really just a, an all encompassing tool, I'll say. Yeah, absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when you've got a DAF, you can name someone else to make those recommendations for you. And so if, you know, you are, say you've, you've named a DAF as the remainder beneficiary of your trust, and when you pass away, you're no longer there to make decisions and to make recommendations for which charities you want to keep benefiting. Well, you can name one of your children then to make those benefit to make those decisions for you. So again, to your point, AJ, you're continuing the family values. And if your family has a just an overall mission of giving to a certain type of charity, let's just say you're a big ranching family. And so you really want to benefit um, horse therapy charities, things like that start instilling that in your children and then they can continue that gifting on with a DAF after you've passed away. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and the reason it works that way is because the, the donor advised fund setup is a contract between the donor and the sponsoring charity. And of course, because it's a contract, you can negotiate the terms of these things. So you can negotiate in and most, I mean, most sponsoring charities, they know, they know how these things are set up and they're flexible. So you can basically set up a board of family members or a succession of board, quote unquote, board members for that donor advised fund who all get to to make these decisions. I absolutely love them. I think they're they're extremely useful. They're very nimble. They're easy to set up. You can you know you can get these things set up in like a day sometimes, and they are a great way to house family charitable planning to house the sorry to house the funds for family charitable planning one other thing i wanted to point out with this this applies to the foundation bit as well that we're going to talk about is that charitable funds having charitable funds i should say is very important 
regardless of where a a client or a person falls on like a spectrum of ideas okay about how to use those funds they could be as liberal politically as you could imagine they could be as conservative politically as you can imagine or anywhere in between and the and the types of charities they want to support could be anywhere in between it does not really matter where they fall on that spectrum the causes they want to support run on cash and so you need cash in a charitable fund that you can use to support those causes. If you want to matter to those causes, aside from, of course, volunteering your time and, and effort, you need cash. And so we, we see this type of planning come up for client, all kinds of clients. No one particular type of client, no one particular focus, no one particular political view. It's all kinds of clients because all of these causes that they support, they run on cash. And we need to create that pool of cash that we can then use to to support the causes that they're interested in. So I just kind of wanted to flesh that out because I every now and then I get asked the question by by clients who kind of indicate that they think that charitable planning is more for people of one political persuasion versus the other. And that is not the case at all. OK, so changing your just a little bit, then how about foundations, AJ? What what uh, sort of differences in terms of the conversations that you're having with clients, are you seeing for foundations versus DAFs versus something else, I suppose? So I'll say we do work with quite a few foundations, but most, more often than not, we end up using donor advised funds. And that's just because, like you said earlier, they're nimble. They're a lot more simple to open. They're a lot more simple to maintain, a lot less costly too. Um, foundations are great, but some of the drawbacks right off the bat is that there's stringent requirements. You need an attorney to draft up the paperwork. You need an accounting team to do the record keeping. And I like to think you need a good advisor to do the investment side of it. But with that being said, it's particularly impactful for people that have come into a sudden windfall of money. And it'll be instead of you know an ongoing donation every year, they want to make a one-time lasting impact on, on a charity. Or, or I'm sorry, they want to make a long time, a one-time lasting impact. And then from there, on our end, it's set up just like a normal investment account, right? But it's easier in that you don't have to worry about any taxes. But aside from the you know financial side of it, a really good, I'll call it an emotional benefit, is that you can employ people. You can employ friends, family. You have to be, there are some rules about compensation, so on and so forth. But you can employ people and you can make grants to other charitable organizations. So it's not that you would be your own charity, it'd still be a, think of it a vehicle to make other donations, but it has a lot of flexibility. I really like the way that you've described it, because I think a lot of clients, they've got charitable intent, they don't want to do a donor advised fund, they're thinking, you know, well, maybe I should just set up my own charity, right? Because maybe I, maybe I want to start a scholarship fund for certain types of students. And then you start talking through them about the process of setting up a 501c3, and it's a pretty hefty process. There's a lot of paperwork that goes into it. There's annual, um, you have to file the, the 990s every year with the IRS, it, it's a lot of work. And so when they start seeing all of that, they're like, oh, maybe I don't really wanna do that. And so having like a family foundation is a really great alternative to actually having your own nonprofit. Yeah, and they can be they can be structured as as your own nonprofit. So the 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 typical way that they're structured is is as what's called a non-operating private foundation, which just is a fancy tax way of saying you set up your own nonprofit 
and all your nonprofit does is gives money to other charities, okay? And you don't take substantial contributions from outside sources. You know, you're not soliciting money from the general public, you're not getting grants from the government, et cetera. So that kind of non-operating private foundation, it comes with a bunch of rules, there's a bunch of restrictions, as AJ is suggesting, it's not that straightforward to have it and run it. Uh, you do need a team of people to, to kind of help you navigate uh, the rules. You need lawyers to help you set things up. That sounds great to me. I don't know why AJ thinks that's a problem, but they they then allow you as a collective, okay, your, your, you and your family and friends as a collective, the ability to totally control the money. You can't get the money back. So once you put the money into the foundation, like you, the donor, are not getting that money back, but you get to control uh, you get to control the money that's inside that foundation. Okay, contrast that with the donor advice fund. Like we were saying, the sponsoring charity legally must have control of the money, legally must be the person who writes the check to make the contributions to secondary charities of your choice or your suggestion. With the private foundation, you and your family and your friends, you're the ones that control the money. You make all the decisions. You're the ones that legally get to decide which charities to benefit. So that's the the benefit is is to you. The burden's on you too, because you're the one that also has to comply with all of the the tax rules and the legal rules. And that, at least in my in my experience, is sort of the debate that we have with clients about: Do we do a donor advised fund or do we do a private foundation? And it just it's really a it's a flavor issue. It's what taste do they like? And if they like the taste of a private foundation, we go that route. If they don't like the taste of a private foundation, we go the donor advised. Uh, donor advice fund group. And what's really nice about it is, is to your point, Brent, is that you have ultimate flexibility. Once once you have the structure in place and you're following all the rules, you have ultimate flexibility on what you want to do. Do you want to invest it in income producing assets? Do you want to give it to 30 different charities or do you want to just focus on two or one? However it is, it's up to you. Yep. Okay. So let me try and frame. So I want to, I want to talk about charitable remainder trusts. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning, but let me try and frame this just a little bit because I have a lot of clients who are really, really confused about charitable remainder trusts versus donor advised funds versus private foundations. Okay. First of all, the charity is a donor advised fund or a private foundation or some other charity. Okay. There ultimately is going to be a charity that gets money. You then have to select what is the funnel through which I will send my money to get it to the charity. You could write a check directly, like we were talking, or you can make a contribution in kind, like we were talking about with the donor advised funds, or you could put the money into certain types of trusts that then can pay money to charity currently or in the future, okay? If the trust pays the money to charity in the future and is structured right, it's a charitable remainder trust, okay? So you have to, re you have to think of a charitable remainder trust again as a funnel for money that is ultimately going to go to a charity at some point. So with that framework, hopefully that helps people understand where this fits into the picture. But with that framework, then uh, AJ, I'll, I'll kind of kick it to you again. What what are the the common issues or questions or benefits that that you're seeing with your clients and uh, charitable remainder trusts? So they're really perfect when you all. Similar to donor advised funds and a foundation, it's really perfect when you want to donate an appreciated asset, but more so when you want to continue generating income for yourself 
through that donation. So what I mean by that is let's just say, just for easy numbers sake, you donate $100,000 of Apple stock into this charitable remainder trust. Well, there's provisions in there that will say you can get a certain amount of income back from the trust every single year, but at the end of your life, all of that is all of the remaining amounts are going to go to charity. And those amounts are to be they're all they're so they're customizable to a degree of the income, but it's essentially for a way to donate something and continue receiving interest or income from it over time. Yeah, I see a lot of charitable remainder trusts where our clients have that charitable intent. They want to get the deduction up front, but they don't want to lose all of the income, right? They they don't want to part with all of that money up front. And so, well, they technically are, right? Like you said, you're putting the money into this irrevocable trust. It's gone. It's staying in that trust. But depending on what type of charitable remainder trust you have, you are going to get that income stream during your lifetime or during maybe a term of 10, 20 years, however you set up the trust. If you've got a charitable remainder annuity trust, you are going to be getting a fixed annuity amount each year. And all of the, the math and the calculations for exactly how much it, it's all done at the time you, you create the trust, so you know all the numbers. Or you could do a tra- charitable remainder unit trust in which you get a fixed percentage of the trust assets back each year. So that could fluctuate a little bit, of course, depending on the market and how the assets are doing, things like that. But it's a way for you to just get some money back during your lifetime or during the term of years. And then upon uh, your passing or the end of the term, the charity gets the rest. And it's it's that simple. Yep. And to to contrast that just a little bit for context, if somebody's thinking, well, why wouldn't I just sell the Apple stock and then draw money off of the proceeds from the Apple stock? Isn't that essentially the same? And of course, the answer is no, it's not. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about this. And the reason that people do the charitable remainder trust is because, first of all, when you contribute that Apple stock to the trust, you are entitled to a charitable contribution deduction that you can use against your income in the current year, and then you can carry it forward for 20 years if you can't use it all this year. So you get a, you get a deduction right up front. The trust itself is not taxed. It does not pay any tax. Instead, what happens is when you put the Apple stock in the trust, it sells the, the stock, say, in year one. It pays no capital gains tax on that sale. Then it can reinvest the money Every year, if if its reinvestments appreciate and it sells those reinvestments, no capital gains. If those investments pay dividends, it doesn't have dividend income. But as it makes payments to you over your lifetime, which are going to be sort of like slow dribbling out of money back to you, slow in the sense that it's going to take a, a number of years over your lifetime to get money back. As you receive the money back, then you pay the taxable gains that were generated by the trust. So you're gonna pay some of that capital gains as you're receiving it from the trust, but rather than paying it all in one year and getting no charitable deduction, instead, you take the charitable deduction right up front, and then you pay the the capital gains in small little increments over many years, and in the aggregate, your effective tax rate is almost certainly gonna be infinitesimally smaller than it would have been had you just sold the stock and then drawn off of that, uh, of those proceeds in the same sort of fashion as the Chevrolet Mainer Trust is doing. And going back to kind of square one, Brent, it's think of it just like a funnel. Like this all might sound a little bit complicated, but that's why you've got a great team of attorneys 
advisors and accountants to help work you work through it with you. Yep, that's it exactly. You you have these uh, meetings with your advisors or with an advisor like uh, AJ when he calls the clients up and says, "Hey, it's time for our annual review," and they sit down and they look at your list of assets and you suggest, you know, I'm kind of want to give to certain charitable causes and then looking at your list of assets and what you have available to to support those causes oftentimes if there are appreciated assets then charitable remainder trusts are at least on the table to talk about doesn't mean that you're going to do it but it's at least on the table as an option to talk about because it as we've been saying it it gives you the ability to sell out of appreciated positions reinvest the funds on a tax-free basis and then reduce your tax hit overall and still fund your charitable intent. Out of curiosity, AJ, do your clients tend to lean towards one of these different vehicles that we've talked about more than one more than the other? So it's a pretty even split, I would say, between in terms of the leaders, between donor advised funds and the, the QCDs, the qualified charitable distributions. Any time that we can use the qualified charitable distribution, we will because that's just it's the highest level of tax savings. But other than that, donor advice funds and their simplicity are a big, you know, big driver of why our clients like them. But in certain situations, charitable remainder trusts make make a ton of sense as well as foundations. I, yeah, I like I like pairing up charitable remainder trusts with the client's donor advised fund or private foundation, because then while the trust exists, they can actually be the trustee of the trust. So they basically control the trust and its investments. They're getting they're getting money out of the trust. They're taking a deduction uh, for having contributed to the trust. And on the back end, when they're going to fund the DAF or the private foundation with the balance that's in the trust, then their family is also controlling the money. So at every level, the client or their family is going to be in the driver's seat with with respect to that money and how it's being invested. And I really like that because uh, I have a, I guess I have a lot of clients that are control freaks, but I think it checks a lot of boxes for clients who might be hesitant to part with money in a in a in a very final fashion. So it's a it's a good way for them to kind of keep their hand in on the steering wheel, so to speak. All right. Well, we came to the end of my list. Anything anything else either of the two of you uh, wanted to add? I think we hit them all. All right. Nice. Very nice. Well, as usual, AJ, we can't thank you enough for lending your time. We know it takes time out of your very busy schedule to do these sorts of things. So thank you again. Uh, we'll be sure to put all of your uh, contact information in the show notes as usual, and we hope to see you soon. Thanks again for having me. This was great. Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.